Right. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you very much for, for watching me, letting me come this evening. Um, my name's Peter. Um, Will asked, has asked me to circulate around a couple of the, the student groups on different evenings talking um, about the subject of uh, thriving as a Christian at university. I don't know if that is a subject anyone has regaled you with uh, before, um, so I hope I don't uh, retread <laughs> uh, ground if, uh, if they have. Um, <coughs> So uh, this is a bit where I say I was young once, uh, so I went to three different universities uh, and ended up uh, studying philosophy and then uh, worked for a number of years as a student worker uh, before coming down to Southampton where I now uh, have been for 12 years, um, partly because um, this is where the headquarters of a Christian charity called the Demaris Trust uh, is, uh, with whom I do... Uh, mainly schools work with uh, mainly sixth form students around the country um, but I also um, do opportunities for sort of Christian debating and lecturing at CEs and churches uh, primarily on apologetics kind of topics uh, and so at Highfield I also I co-run the, the Reasonable Faith course on Sunday afternoons with uh, uh, Pete May and Keith Fox who's a Professor at the university, right there. <laughs> um, <coughs> and I've got a very part-time position at a university college in Norway, and uh, so I do bits and bobs. Um, you can find me on the web, uh, especially those of you who have iPads. You can find me on the web at um, peterswilliams.com, um, and I have a podcast channel, and um, that's free and video. YouTube channel and papers and all sorts of things there were free and I am indeed whatever I do I record myself because I might end up putting it on the podcast channel so I thought I should warn you that this is this is live you know. um, so anyway some thoughts um, and I, I'd like to, to, to kind of take a particular angle through this subject from starting from thinking about spirituality thinking about spirituality, thinking about university, and looking at uh, two or three Bible passages, uh, two short ones and one longer one, that I think uh, speak particularly uh, to the whole adventure of um, flourishing in Christian spirituality in a university environment. And uh, I guess, given my brain, I will put most emphasis on thinking about the kind of academic side, but I don't want to cut out the sort of the whole uh, roundedness of the experience, um, as as you'll see from what I'm about to say about spirituality. And spirituality is one of those uh, modern buzz terms that gets flung around the place with terrible imprecision, which is really annoying for a philosopher who like everything to be defined nicely. So I've done some research and thinking on um, how to define spirituality as a sort of general concept and I eventually came up with the thought that spirituality is, is basically about relationships, it's about how you relate to everything, to yourself, 
to whatever you think ultimate reality is, to other people, to the world around you, and so on. Uh, and it's how you relate to those things through the, the integration of your head and your heart and your hands, if you like. You know, this is betraying my Baptist upbringing. I have three points beginning with the same letter, you see. So, um, but your, your head, your, your, your thinking, your worldview, um, your heart, and not just your emotions, in that sort of modern meaning of heart, but in the more biblical meaning, um, your, your affections, your choices, your commitments to things. And your hands as representative of what you, what you do, your behaviour, your actions. So your, your thinking plus your attitudes and commitments towards what you think is true and false about reality will lead you, of course, to behaving in certain ways. Um, and people, different people will behave in different ways in the world because they've got different attitudes towards things and because they have different beliefs about things. Um, so, you know, clearly, you know, we believe in God, so... And we have a positive attitude towards God, and so we bother spending some of our time getting together and praising him. But as James says, even the demons believe in God and tremble, because they have a negative attitude <laughs> towards him. So they behave very differently vis-a-vis -vis God. So you see how, how that works. And I think that's a, a really kind of fruitful tool to have in mind. Uh, and I've been applying it in all sorts of areas of thinking, from film analysis to uh, thinking about spirituality uh, in education. But I didn't get there first. Basically, having come up with this schema, I, re I, I think that schema works because that's just a good description of, of how we're kind of built as human beings. And the Bible knows this. So if you go to Jesus's answer to the question about what is the greatest commandment, well, it is to love the Lord your God with all of your mind and all of your heart and all of your strength he got there first um, not surprising um, so uh, i think it's uh, a general schema you know richard dawkins has a spirituality he has beliefs about what's true and false about the world he has attitudes and commitments on that basis and he does things because of those attitudes and those beliefs you know, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, they all have a spirituality. It's just that they will fill in those different areas of that spirituality <coughs> in slightly different ways. We'll, we will overlap with one another in our spiritualities, but there will be differences between them. And so a Christian spirituality is a Christ-centred spirituality. So we put Christ at the centre of integrating what we think and what our attitudes and commitments are and how we behave in the world. So we love God with all of our mind and heart and strength. And in that context, love our neighbour, again, relationships, as ourself. God loves us and he loves them. And so we realise we've got to love them and we've got to love ourselves because we love him and we love what he loves. And this flows out. And um, so a Christ-centred spirituality. Now, the university, um, to kind of change topics, and of course universities when they were founded were, were primarily Christian institutions of learning, are uh, both a, a thrilling, wonderful opportunity for, for, for spiritual maturation, for, for becoming mature 
independent adults, the whole leaving home experience, the whole standing on your two feet, uh, thinking through things for yourself, um, individuation, all those kind of psychological terms, and a time of, um, therefore, of, of thinking about things, maybe of doubting things, of feeling pressures from different all sorts of different directions to... Uh, to think certain things, to have certain attitudes, to have certain behaviours. Um, if you go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I don't worry if you haven't got I will read for you, but I'll let you know, for those listening on the podcast and those who've got iPad Bibles, I've got, I've got one of these old-fashioned printed things here. Uh, so... Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies or yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, or some translations have, don't be conformed to the, to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So that you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Or, or some translations have, and his, his good and pleasing will. Now, once you've got this head, heart, hand thing, spirituality in mind, of course, you will suddenly notice, aha, okay, so we present our whole selves to God in light of his love for us, which is our spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed to this world in the Pauline sense of the world in opposition to God. Uh, it, by the world, he doesn't like mean planet Earth or just people. He means uh, the structure of things that is opposed to what God would want. So don't be conformed to this world. Don't give in to the pressure to be like the pagans or whatever. But be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our minds so that we may discern what is the will, the heart, of God, what he wants us to, to will, uh, that is what is good to do and be like and acceptable or good and, and pleasing, that which we can judge to be good and which we can delight in and enjoy, that, that, that it is right for us to enjoy, whatever is praiseworthy, as Paul says in Philippians. In his very non-subjective passage, he doesn't say, you know, whatsoever things float your boat, and whatsoever things um, happen uh, to please you, then enjoy that stuff because you know different strokes for different folks. In Philippians, Paul says, whatsoever things are good, are true, are worthy of praise. Think about these things. So he has a very objective view of these values of truth and goodness and beauty which align with what we think about what is true, what we commit to being a beautiful life and what we do being good 
in the world. And you can see all of that wrapped up there in Romans 12. So university is, is, you know, it's an exciting and challenging time for developing your Christian spirituality, um, for giving yourself uh, to God, knowing that you're doing that because you're choosing to do that, not just because, you know, you're in the home environment maybe that you've, you've come from a Christian one and everyone's doing that. You know, other, other people, of course, will not come from Christian backgrounds necessarily. Um, my personal experience was, was coming from a Christian home and then going to university and, and going through the... Uh, actually, do, I con do, do you continue with this? Do I get involved in the CU? It's obviously chosen to get involved in Christian things. Um... But there will be worldly pressures that you meet in the university as well as Christian ones and you have to, to choose which ones to be involved with and be influenced and be influencing and so on. And there will be influences at all of those three levels, influences about what we think academically, um, but also, I think, um, in, in terms of the commitments of our heart and, and what we do in terms of what you spend your time on and your money on and and so on and those are all those are all ineluctably it's a good word isn't it ineluctably wrapped up together um, necessarily you can't have one without the other you know, I'd say ineluctably bound together yes that's a good one ineluctably uh, so that's uh, spirituality and university As I say, I'm, I, you get those pressures at all, all three levels, particularly in, in terms of the ac academics of university and the worldview roots of your subject. Um, <coughs> I think where I'll go from here is straight into what I said about the longer Bible passage. I think this, this is a really interesting passage to look at and, and sort of meditate upon as a Christian in academia. Is Daniel chapter 1. And indeed, at Reasonable Faith, <coughs> the other week, I gave a 20-minute talk, which is now up on my podcast channel, on um, looking at the the history behind the story in Daniel of the, the Jewish exile into Babylon and looking at what the Bible says and comparing it to like here's the Babylonian chronicles that mention the same thing and you know, here's the Bible mentioning King so and so <coughs> here's the Babylonian cylinder that mentions oh look King so and so looking at the history um, but it's Daniel chapter 1 is really interesting from, from the point of view of, of particularly going off to university the first time so, so let me read you a bit of a bedtime story so in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah there's some great names to try and pronounce in this passage King <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he, I Nebuchadnezzar, brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. 
so this is the, the start of the devastating exile of the Jews and conquest of the Jews by Babylon. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of royal rations of food and wine. They had, they had catering at their halls of residence. They were to be educated for three years. So they were clearly doing a bachelor degree, three years. So at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So they've, they've been given new Babylonian names. This is you know, very symbolic because they've, they've been They've had their names, which represent Jewish beliefs about their God, taken away from them. And they've been given Babylonian names that reflect Babylonian beliefs about Babylonian gods. So this is a, this is a bid to, to re-educate them. They've gone to, you know, re-education camp. We're going to change your worldview. We're going to give you different names. We're going to change your identity. We're going to take you away from home we're going to train you for three years in our way of viewing things even to the extent we're going to change your names indoctrination indoctrination yeah but daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine now we kind of miss again the significance of this because of our culture but culturally in the East, the table fellowship and sharing food with people, if he accepted the rations from the king table, he would basically be honour bound uh, to uh, be, he would be in effect expressing his allegiance to that king because he'd accepted the table fellowship from him and probably also was slightly worried about it not being kosher food. The, the food at the, the Babylonian court would not have <coughs> adhered to Old Testament rules about what foods were proper and not proper and so on. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favour and compassion from the palace master who didn't kill him there and then. Basically, <laughs> I think the palace master said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king. He's appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, he would endanger my head with the king. You'd endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the guard, whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, well, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations, <coughs> and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So this is very canny. He's saying, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm not. We're not being rebellious. Now let's just let's just do a little test. Now I'm, I'm not going to endanger you with the king because he's not going to come and look at us for ages. Let's just do a little test." And I think the the interesting thing about this way of Daniel sort of drawing a line in the sand against the you are now being indoctrinated to be faithful to this whole new system of thinking and this new king and everything to be conformed to the pattern of his new world is he doesn't say go up to the palace master and say I don't want to eat this food because it says here in Deuteronomy chapter 12 verses you know that I should eat this because well, the palace master's not going to care about that, is he? That's not going to cut the, the, the mustard with him. But in, instead, he makes an argument on the basis of something that the palace master can buy into as a legitimate argument. So he gets to the same end, but he doesn't just go quoting scripture at him. He He goes for a, as it were, uh, a form of argumentation acceptable to the culture that he's now been put in. Which is, which is canny. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days it was observed <coughs> that they appeared better and fatter than all of the young men who'd been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into visions and dreams, which of course comes very significant later on in the in the book. At the end of the time, at the end of their three years, that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. So they go for their, their final viva exam. And the king spoke with them, and among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. So... Under a huge kind of cultural pressure of conform to this new ungodly way of living, Daniel decides to draw a, a line in the sand over something that's at least symbolic of him saying, no, I, I, I'm not going to toe the line I'm being told to, I'm going to toe God's line. But he he does that in a, in a canny way on the base, on a basis that the the culture he's now in can uh, can understand as being a legitimate reason for his behaviour, um, and he's concerned not to unnecessarily get people in in trouble or just make trouble for the sake of it, kind of thing. He he, he takes pains to show that the way he wants to do things. Although, yeah, it's the way he wants to do things. It's actually to their benefit as well. It's like, I will really please... They, they, they turn out of university at the end of the top of the class. 
they get really good jobs in the palace because of it. They're, they're, they're the wisest. They've learned everything. They they have learned the the wisdom and understanding and literature and, and mythology and so on of the Babylonians better than the Babylonians, one might say. <laughs> Ten times better than all the other en- enchanters and magicians of the court and so on. Um, but they haven't they haven't given in to that that education. They've mastered it, but they've not been conformed by it. They've stayed conformed to their godly background. So conforming to serving Christ with your whole self doesn't mean rejecting pagan secular wisdom or understanding or learning and indeed serving Christ with all of your mind might mean working harder at understanding all of those things than than the non-Christians than the non-believers and choosing those places where you draw a line and say actually no that's the wrong way to look at it but not then saying that's the wrong way to look at it because it says here in Genesis 12 or it says here in you know even though that's why you might get your ideas from but because you say well let's do a test let's argue about that let's see who's got the best case for, for viewing it this way or that way Um, and I think that says a a lot about the the Christian way to flourish and get the most out of a non-Christian educational system all truth is is God's truth but it it will be true that you'll, you'll I think inevitably come across in such a situation particularly at the basis of the subjects that we study at university, non-Christian worldview assumptions. So I don't know if are any of you doing doing um, natural sciences, physics, biology, cosmology, that kind of. This is this is more true in those kind of subjects. What's what sometimes philosophers of science called call. Them historical sciences or origin sciences where you're trying to explain things this applies a little bit less in, in so-called process sciences if you're trying to you know, work out what what trying to measure exactly as we haven't managed to do yet what is the strength of the law of gravity um, you know this is not going to be so much the case but uh, science comes with various philosophies of science uh, and you will often, in a secular world, hear science defined in a very naturalistic way. Even if that is what, so if you come across so, so-called methodological naturalism. So this is uh, yes, interesting. How much philosophy of science do they actually teach when you do science? None. But you might might inculcate some. So you will often you know, hear things like, in order for an explanation to be a scientific explanation, um, don't mention God. Okay, 
Well, that's kind of assumed. Yeah, that is, that's kind of assumed, isn't it? Um, so in order to be a proper scientific explanation, your explanation must mention matter, laws laws of physics, things operating over time, um, matter plus time plus chance plus laws of physics. That's basically your sort of toolkit of things that you can legitimately draw on to explain anything. Okay. Um, and then say, well, what, what if, you know, I'm asking <coughs> where the world came from, where life came from, or how something came about. Um, suppose I believe theologically that God had something to do with that. So, well, that's not science. Well, do you mean that's just my, do you mean that's not true? And people say, well, no, 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 no. When, when we say in science you must explain things in, in this certain way, we're, we're not actually making claims about which worldview is true. We're not saying there's no God. Science doesn't say anything about God. You see? So we're not saying there's no God and that he wasn't involved. We're just saying you don't need to mention, you shouldn't, don't need to mention him or you shouldn't mention him. Um, so you get into this move from we're not we're not claiming that naturalism as a worldview, materialism as a worldview is is true. We're not assuming that, <coughs> but but actually you should do science. Well, in effect, you should do science as if materialism were true. You see, and you can retain your any religious beliefs you have in private, but do science as if. Materialism's true, and that's called. That. Sorry, I probably agree with that. Yeah, and that that uh, approach to science is called methodological naturalism. So you're not claiming naturalism's true, but just as a method, as a way of defining what it is to do science, you do it as if God didn't have anything to do with anything, even if he did. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but you do science. The problem is you can't quantify whether he did or not. Well, the thing is, in the discussion amongst philosophers of science about defining science and thinking about this rule of methodological naturalism as, defi as being part of what it means to do science properly, in recent decades, even the atheist philosophers of science would now tend to say that methodological naturalism is a bad idea. Do they suggest an alternative? Well, for example, there's a, a philosopher of science called Bradley Monton who makes this argument. He says... Whatever science is, and yes, it's hard to define it, surely science ought to be a search for the truth about reality. We want to know what, what really happened, or how things really came about. Um, but if you do science according to the methodological naturalism rule, that would mean that... If the true explanation of, some, of how something came about was included God doing something, then 
you are forever condemned to ignorance in science. Science is not a search for truth anymore. Rather, science is a search for the best explanation we can come up with subject to the condition that we don't mention God. So science is not a search for the truth. It's a search for this other thing. And he says, well, that seems very counterintuitive. So what do you, what do, you do about that? He says, we'll just ditch methodological naturalism. So say science is a search for the truth about reality. <laughs> well, a search for the truth about empirically investigatable reality. Yeah. Yes. So it's perhaps we should change the definition of science. <laughs> yes, but at the very least, it's, it, it's saying so we should change the definition of science not to include methodological naturalism. As but then I have the problem of. Say we ditch mm. methodological naturalism. How would we approach science? It's it would mean a complete shift. Yeah, which is which is interesting. Uh, <laughs> is, is there not perhaps a case for for for, um, for looking at the method and the interpretation differently? So your your method is to investigate from a naturalistic perspective. But, but if you then find that the explanations that you can reach from a naturalistic perspective mm -hmm. are unsatisfactory from a logical perspective, at that point you then start to seek other explanations, yeah. but then you perhaps accept that those explanations you're now moving outside of the scientific method. So perhaps you draw a distinction mm -hmm. between philosophical, philosophical logical view, and so you see science as really more of a tool within a framework. Right, so science is now a... a, 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 a a method that might help us towards finding out the truth about reality, but it's and, not and, the and, subject and, and, that... Yeah. So, so it, is a, it is a tool that is in empirical and naturalistic that mm. we use to discover truth, but we accept that there are other ways of discovering truth. Yeah. So perhaps rather than trying to bring God into science, perhaps it's better to put science, perhaps to reduce the, the, scope, the scope of science, of science. and reduce the... Not yeah. make science everything, but to say that's one thing. Right. There may be things yeah. that are outside of that that we can't really pursue with the scientific method. Right. I, and I, I certainly think, uh, most philosophers I think would think, that um, you can't view science as the only way of knowing anything. There's got to be more ways to knowing. And maybe, you know, it, it could be a matter of definition, as you say, where you, where you make the, the, this cut-off, this, this boundary. But it... And certainly, I, I think even if you get rid of methodological naturalism, you might well have a rule that, that said... Um, always try and go for a naturalistic explanation first. Hmm. And then put it in a wider context? And then, if that doesn't work, and you've got sufficient reasons for, for bringing in something beyond the sort of naturalistic box toolkit of explanations, then you, then you could. But, but don't have a sort of God of the gaps approach, but you, you need some sort of um, rational... Uh, approach of, of justifying when when you go beyond the available resources of that sort of naturalistic explanation kit hmm. but you're not 
you're not by definition prevented from doing that a sort of philosophical yeah. pipeline yeah yeah where you yeah. float out that's right if, if so, it's great if not it, it's a bit like it's a bit like pointing out you know surely just saying well I'm, I'm only ever going to you know if I want to know how did life come about and before I look at any evidence I'm going to have the rule I'm only going to mention material things to Oh, I, you know, see, I think that's kind of the opposite of saying before I look at the evidence I'm just going to think well God must have done a miracle <laughs> well maybe actually those are sort of equal opposite mistakes and the thing to do is to say when I ask how did life come about I'm going to try and look at see if I can discover as much evidence and data as I can and then I'm going to think what's the best way of explaining this evidence and maybe I'll think, you know, if I can explain it within a naturalistic kind of box, within the you know, natural things that, of course, I think were created by God, can do this on their own, on their own bat, then I'll be satisfied with that. And if I find that I need more than the resources of that toolkit give me, and I've got good reason for going for more, then I'll do that. But it, it, the arguments will become, you know, have, what's the best explanation and who's got the best arguments and who's got the best data? rather than making up your mind in advance of the the evidentially guided search which, so that's you know as I say, that is a fascinating kind of discussion and it's actually one I, I think that the within the philosophy of, of science that sort of more open approach has kind of won the day um, and it doesn't prejudge what views anyone uh, comes to, and that's kind of the the, the point of it. Um, but you can see how going through an educational system that just makes the assumption, without necessarily even talking about it very much, here's what science must be. Um, uh, and then you, see, so you think about that a bit and you think, what well, doesn't that mean that science is not a search for what's true about things? And, uh, <laughs> what, about, what about what this atheist, atheist philosopher of science is saying about that being a problem? You say, well, okay. <laughs> so um, the, the necessity of, of thinking about those kind of foundational concepts of a subject, you know, is it legitimate to mention spiritual, supernatural things in a discipline or not? Can that be excluded just by a definition? Um, Though I don't see it happening in an academic context anytime soon. <laughs> well, that, that might well be right, but there, I mean, there are... Um, so, I mean, this, this, that whole methodological naturalism thing is part of the, the discussion underlying the whole debate about intelligent design theory within within science which is a sort of approach that's grown up in the last 20-25 years um, which is a, a small but growing movement and that's an interesting new sort of discussion partner in the whole debate about understanding origins um, has mapped out a, a sort of new approach between um, the sort of creationist and theistic evolution and naturalistic evolution there's now a whole sort of a, a new broad 
broadly defined camp that's come up from this discussion in the philosophy of science about, well, actually, how are we defining these things? How are we approaching the basic issues? Um, but I'm just using that as a sort of general consciousness raiser about, um, again, you know, the discussion of origins used to be pinned down to you know, people reading, well, I interpret Genesis this way and therefore I'm, I'm going to be a, you know, a, a creation scientist. Or, well, science is defined in this way, and therefore, <coughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to mention anything. You know, it's like you must mention God. You must not mention God. Um, maybe there's a third way of <laughs> of parsing this, um, but you actually have to not allow yourselves to be pinned down to the accepted way of doing things just because it's the accepted way of doing things if you as a Christian might think well maybe there's a better way of doing this but again you don't argue for it by, by going to you know Genesis 1 <laughs> but you might argue argue for for it by going to oh it's interesting that I can quote this atheist philosopher of science saying this about this definition of science and what that might mean for science <laughs> That's a much more canny way of going about it. If you if you if you want to go, there. yes, so you yeah. have. Uh, so could it could it could it be almost as it were? Religion is the who, and science is the how. But that doesn't but so essentially have science like evolution, big bang theories, how God made it, mm. and having religion be God, not having as it were science. Telling, telling what happened, how it happened. Yes, yeah, and, and certainly that is a way that some people divide up the territory. Um, and I think it's partially true, at least, but not necessarily wholly true, in, in as much as, again, it will come down to, well, what are you meaning by, by saying science covers the how? And, and what kind of explanations are you letting into science? So if I, if I say God explains, you know, religion is about God, and that's the who and the why yeah. about reality. You know, why is it here? Who, who's ultimately to the ultimate explanation for why there is any matter obeying any laws of physics at all? You know, clearly that's, that's beyond the bounds of science. Now we're talking <coughs> metaphysics, that's philosophy, that's religion. That's where I can mention God. Well, okay, there's, there's, there's some legitimacy and benefit to that, that I think. But then you say, if I then come to science, and science is, is defined in a way that means I can only mention the, the things and the processes of things that, that I happen to think God created in order to explain things, then if it were true that God ever did a miracle in order to make something happen in reality, then by definition I wouldn't be allowed to discover that or argue for that within science. So, so I, I think that we'll never, we'll never know how God, how God, as well, did... At least that's a potential danger of the approach. You know, maybe God didn't do any miracles in order to, you know. Maybe he just created a world and, and the laws of physics and sustains any existence and as the theistic evolution <coughs> thinks the world that God created is then capable of, of making itself. 
from there on, as it were. And you know, maybe that's that's true. Um, but if that's not true, and you do science with a methodological naturalistic rule, then that's a that would be a problem. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's like uh, it it all, it all it all depends. But again, do do. You, Prejudge and kind of define things in a way that you sort of end up crossing your fingers and going, well, well, I hope this is, this rule's not going to mislead me from ever knowing the truth about what happened. I think it's a sort of odd kind of rule to put in place from from, from the beginning. Um, so that's the kind of the, the kind of discussion, but it, it um, you know it, it opens up a whole sort of. Um, more the the the, the legitimacy of a what broader range of possible approaches and explanations being actually mentioned within science. I mean, I've even drawn a distinction between hard and soft method methodological naturalism. I, I will stop at this one um, because um, if you said um, when we're explaining things in science, you must never mention intelligence as a cause of anything, that would be really problematic because then the forensic scientists are stuffed. Because they go, was, you know, did this guy fall or was he pushed? Um, hang on a minute, I mustn't look at the evidence because whatever explanation I come up with in order to be scientific mustn't mention intelligence. So he wasn't murdered. You know, well that would be an odd way uh, to go about it. But, um, okay, what do you say? I must never mention an intelligence which is specifically and explicitly a supernatural intelligence. So I can say he was murdered, but I can never say, you know, a ghost did it, or, you know, what have you. Okay, okay so, but then if you apply that rule, why not have that rule within chemical evolution studies or whatever? You know, I can mention intelligence as long as I don't explicitly mention a supernatural one. When we go down the pub afterwards, then we can, again, where do you draw, draw that dividing line? Maybe, you know, <laughs> other than intelligence is an intelligence, whether it's supernatural or, or not or whatever. Um, do, the, do the two forensic scientists, you know, one of whom thinks people have souls and one of whom is a materialist about the mind, thinks a person just is their brain. Can't they agree that yeah, intelligence acting was the best explanation of this historical event, scientifically speaking, and then go down the pub and have an argument about whether mind-body dualism is true. You know, they don't, they don't have to get into that debate. But that doesn't mean that they can't mention intelligence. And we, we mention intelligence in history and forensic science and in setting and in archaeology and in cryptography and in, but you mustn't do it in biology why it's yeah, an interesting interesting question but uh, you're getting me on, on to, on to a, I don't want to hammer at, at a particular thing but uh, to draw from that uh, uh, just a wider point about the the potential interest and fruitfulness of not just taking on blind trust, 
the secular definitions or rules or, or understanding at a, at, a, at a basic worldview level about how we should understand our subjects. But if we, if you think about it from a Christian viewpoint and you think, actually here is an area where I think my world Christian worldview might lead me to take a different approach as being more true to reality or rationality or more more honouring of who I understand God to be and so on. The wise approach to making that argument is to do it on on grounds that are seen as legitimate from the secular viewpoint. Rather, you know, let's do a test, as Daniel says, rather than to do it from well, you know, to bridle. Well, I'm, I'm not going to take this evolution exam because I understand Genesis in a, in a certain way. You know, <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. Um, and the, the very fact that you, you're, because you're wanting to honour God, you're thinking through these issues at that deeper level and comparing, well, this is how secular society approaches this subject. How would God want people to approach that subject? You will understand your subject at a deeper level than the students who are who don't feel any tension or conflict because that is their culture. They're not having to, to they just take it on, on board and what you just learn this and regurgitate this for the exam or whatever. You know, that's the approach. Oh is it okay, let's do it. You know? <laughs> um, so it actually pays academic dividends in terms of the depth of understanding you'll you'll have of the subject. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll graduate ten times better than the other magicians and enchanters of our class, as it were. Um, no, not to put any pressure on, but, you know, the, 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 the wonderful message I bring to you tonight is that actually, yes, Christians, I think, should work harder than other students at university. But we have, we have the motivation and the support from one another and from God and, and the desire to honour him with our minds as well as our hearts and our, our strength and so on because of his great love for us uh, and we have you know wonderful resources uh, in the in the church family and so on for helping us to do that um, but if we really are committed to to worshiping god with our minds with our whole selves as we go through university and help taking the the most making the most of that university opportunity to kind of flourish spiritually um, then i think you know we're going to work rest and play harder than everyone else <laughs> which brings us to half past thank you very much <laughs> I think that was interesting and, and some of it was useful thank you just like if say our friend came to us and they were sick we wouldn't be like right I'm just gonna wait for 10 days while praying for you and then <laughs> right. I'll take you to the hospital yeah. <laughs> yeah but that would be a similar thing to kind of what Daniel did back in his day like with his health and like eating vegetables or something I don't know it's, just, it's, it's, it's like but the secular view versus the religious 
Well, see, your question presumes that the correct religious view is to say, let's not use medicine and medical knowledge, let's pray for you, you see. Uh, well, the question, of course, would be, well, is that the correct religious view? Or what do, you, do, you, do you think that's the correct religious view? Do you think that's what the Bible leads you to, to do? And if you do, why aren't you doing it? You know? <laughs> but... You'd <but, but, laughs> even see Jesus training in medicine and, you know, acupuncture <laughs> and stuff like that. Like. <laughs> no, no, true, but he did well, have a... He had a particular... <laughs> 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 Yeah, I, I know what you're asking. But he wasn't. By using those particular methods that he used for the particular end he was using them for, he wasn't thereby dissing medicine. It's not as if Luke, who was a doctor, who wrote Luke, Luke and Acts, um, seems to you know give any any indication of, of thinking oh you know medicine is is he shows lots of interest <coughs> in, the, in the particulars of the medical conditions that are mentioned in, in the in the gospels um, compared to matthew and mark uh, for example um in the ancient world they used i believe you to use oils as a medicinal remedy and in the in the new testament letters it talks about putting putting oil on, on on people and praying for them. Um, so, um, I, I would say I think the Christian approach is to understand, make the most we can of our medical understanding and expertise, which is part of worshiping God with our minds, and to pray. <laughs> um, you know, and there are there are times where, of course, where. You know, our medical expertise comes to an end and our ability to heal things come to an end. We, you know, people are going to suffer and die. And we can do the most that we can with our present understanding to, to relieve their, their conditions or to heal them um, temporarily of, of things. They'll get something else and die something eventually. You know, if nobody dies, nobody gets to go to heaven. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sometimes there'll, there'll be times when prayer is all you've got and there do I think there do seem to be times when there's reasonable evidence of miraculous healings and so on but you know miracles are not to a penny yeah. if they were they wouldn't be unusual and miraculous and you don't see them mentioned <laughs> in many medical journals uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's no, but you do it's the kind of thing that's published publicised in yeah. the but you see, oh, so I could I could change some uh, so I could change some papers. Yeah, um, there definitely are some out there. Um, like there was a big trial where they got a whole group of patients and like they prayed for them, and then there was a group that weren't prayed for, and the ones that were prayed for did better. And it's like it's a genuine trial. It is in I don't know where it is, but yeah. there is some evidence out there. Wouldn't you want to be in a group? I doubt that. I imagine it's the kind of. It's hard to get funding. Is that even ethical? They weren't told. They signed up for it. They weren't told the truth. Interestingly, the one, the group where they did, the last study where they did tell them they were being prayed for, the ones who were being prayed for did worse. The the theory behind that being that when when they were told that God was being invoked, they thought it must be really serious and it didn't do much for their... It was a a nocebo effect rather than a placebo effect. Yeah, they were... Being told told that um, the doctors are resorting to prayer doesn't do a lot for you. um, Doesn't do a lot for you. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
That's cute. Yeah, but that's yeah. how you're, you're Christian. You're not allowed to pray for yourself. Or have any relatives by chance they pray for themselves in each of the groups. That's why it's quite hard to do those kind of studies. Yeah, it is. The study design is. Yeah, crucial, controversial, but to be fair, are we talking are we talking about asking God to do it all by himself or are you saying help us? Because if it's help us yeah. then we well, do Well exactly those yeah. would be two quite different kind of things to measure as yeah, well. Yeah. I, I wouldn't ask God get 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 me a degree in science if I if in this bias course they didn't do the work. Yes. If I did the work and then ask for help. Yeah, you need to feel it's legitimate to ask if you've done yeah. your, be- your best. Do, yeah. do what I can do and need to to God. Yeah, that, that's right. So, yeah, I think we have to be as, uh, you know, <coughs> wise, as wise as serpents, as it says, in, in integrating uh, and putting side by side the, 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 the learning that we get at university and the learning that we get through theology and we're, we're all of us trying to come up with the, our best understanding of reality from all of the sources of learning available to us yeah. you know yeah um, I'm really sorry but some of us have to sneak that's, that's fine I've heard you've got oh, an interesting other lecture yeah, so if anyone fancies some more of you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. it's in 10 minutes have anyone <laughs> sorry Jeff.